Okay, good evening, everybody. First off, a very special thank you to Jason Goldsmith, who's sponsoring tonight's class in honor of his father's yard site, which will take place the 4th of Tishrei. Avram Yaakov ben Elio Avigdor. May his neshama have an aliyah through our learning and through Jason's continuous growth. Hashem. This is really our last get-together for a few weeks until after Sukkot and then back to Bereshis and Mitzvah Shem. When Beethoven was young, there was a sense of promise that he could be really one of the greatest musicians of all time. And after Mozart, he was, uh, he was viewed as the next, the next Godel in music. At the time he was 30, he was well-known, he was popular, and uh, his future was looking pretty good. Only problem we know, that when he was 26 years old, he started hearing some buzzing in his ears. And by age 30 in 1800, he wrote a letter to a friend as follows. He wrote, for the last three years, my hearing has grown steadily weaker. I can give you some idea of this peculiar deafness when I must tell you that in the theater, I have to get very close to hear the orchestra and to understand the performers. And that from a distance, I do not hear the high notes of the instruments or the singers. Sometimes too, I hardly hear people speak softly. The sound I could hear is true, but not the words. And yet, if anyone shouts, I can't bear it. So there is clearly something wrong. He tried keeping this a secret from friends and family. He didn't want the world to know. He writes in a different letter that for two years, I've avoided almost all social gatherings because it's impossible for me to tell people that I can't hear. Story goes, not sure how true it is, but he was on a stroll one time in the country uh, together with another composer, and they saw this shepherd who was uh, playing the flute. And Beethoven couldn't hear anything. He looked at his friend and he saw his face, and he could tell that his friend was really enjoying the music. But Beethoven couldn't hear anything. And at that point, it really hit him like a ton of bricks. There is something dreadfully wrong here, and it was devastating. 1812, by the time Beethoven was 44, he was almost completely deaf, unable to hear voices or music. He tried many different things along the way, different forms of old-fashioned hearing aids, but gave up eventually. And then he would sit there by a piano, not really being able to hear the music, he would take a pencil in his mouth and touching the other end of the soundboard to feel the vibrations, he would try to understand how the music sounded through the feel. The amazing thing though about Beethoven's life, and I'm not sure what kind of person he was, never did extensive research, the, the greatest, most transformative music that he ever created was past 44 years old when he was totally deaf. And the only way he was able to compose that music was based on the fact that he was able to hear it years before 
And somehow through the vibrations, he was, he was able to tune in to what he thought it sounded like. What in the world does this have to do with Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah is a, is a very strange holiday when you look at it objectively. There are so many different facets of what seems to be going on. On one hand, the kids in school just learn about apples and honey. I dip the apple in the honey for a happy, sweet new year. Just, just happy and sweet, right? It's all good. Rosh Hashanah. We, we could make fun of the fish's head and poke the eyeballs. It's just fun and games. Then we sing in shul. Hayom harasolam. Hayom yamir bamishpat. Kol yitzurei in the art scroll that's translated as, today is the birth of the world. Today all creation stands in judgment. Kol Yitzuri Olamim, that means all of the creations of all the worlds and all, dimension, all dimensions of reality are standing before the Bore Olam in judgment. But is it really the birthday of the world? Hayom Haras Olam, it doesn't sound like it. We know the famous Midrashic source, the Pesikta, the Rev. the Kahana, where it explains that really on the 25th of Elul was the creation of the universe. Without getting into questions of 13.7 billion years in six days, on the 25th of Elul, everything was created. On the sixth day of creation, that was the Bria of Adam, that was the creation of the human being. And that's the first of Tishrei. Rosh Hashanah is not the birthday of the world. If anything, it's the anniversary. It's the birthday of the creation of man. So why do we say Hayom Haras Olam? Why is it that Hayom Yamid B'Mishpat? Today is the day that everybody stands in Mishpat, in judgment. What's unique about this particular day? So the Ran, going back to the 1300s, he was bothered by this question. He says, Why is a person judged more on Rosh Hashanah than any other day of the year? What's unique? So he explains, We know that Rosh Hashanah was the creation of the human being. And on the sixth day, the Gemara tells us, again, beyond our scope to understand exactly what's going on here, but the Gemara says, everything that we read about, the story of Adam and Chava and Gan Eden, falling prey to the Nisoyon of the Nachash, eating from the Eitz Hadas, and then getting kicked out, that all took place on the sixth day. So the Ran says, just like the first man stood in judgment before Hashem, Viyotza Bedimus, and he went out with victory. Hashem says, So too, your children, your descendants will stand in front of me on this day, on the anniversary of your creation. 
Ve'yotzin bedimus, and they're going to walk out also in victory, with triumph. Any questions on the run? Did other Menchava walk away feeling positive about that experience? <laughs> right? Hashem, we were standing before Hashem in judgment, and everything worked out perfectly. Okay. No need to stress, everybody. From now on, every single year on this day, you will all stand before me in judgment, and all will be good, just like Adam and Chava. So we're going to have to analyze the words of the Ran more carefully. But the basic idea is, because we stood in judgment in the very beginning of our creation, logic would dictate Hashem orchestrated this reality that now we stand before Him b'mishpat every year. Hayom hara solam, today is the birth of the world. What does hara really mean? Does that mean birth? Harayon means pregnancy. It's used in Tanakh to mean conception. So it's not even the birthday of the world, and it's not talking about the anniversary of the creation of the man, but somehow we call Rosh Hashanah Hayom Hara Solam, the day the world was conceived. Kind of strange. Then we go to one of the most famous Mishnayas in all of Shas. And the Mishnah tells us in Rosh Hashanah that there are four times a year that there's a judgment. On Pesach, there's a judgment on the Tavua, on the grain. On Shavuos, there's a judgment on the fruit of the trees. I would have said, if I was the author of the Mishnah, there's a judgment on human beings. Kol Yitzurei Olamim. But that's not what it says. But Rosh Hashanah, Kol Boi Olam Ovrim Lefanov Kibbenei Maron. All of the, the creatures pass before Hashem, just like Bnei Maron. We'll see what that means in a moment. But it doesn't use the word Nidon. It doesn't say that human beings are judged like the wheat, like the fruits of the tree, or like Mayim during Sukkot, but rather Ovrim Lefanov Kibbenei Maron. We pass before Hashem like Bnei Maron. Who are the Bnei Maron? Famously, the Gemara has three interpretations. I want to focus on one of the three. Rabbi Yehuda Amar Shmuel. Kechayalos shall base David. And when the Mishnah says we pass before Hashem like Bnei Maron, the analogy is as if we were soldiers in the army of David HaMelech. That's how we pass in front of Hashem. And Rashi explains, Kibnei Chayalos shall Melech, like soldiers of the royal army, Vekachayumonin Mosam. The way they would count them before they were going out to war, Yotzim Zeacherzeh, they would line up and they would walk this one after that one, but say some as they were about to engage in Mulchama. So, why doesn't the mission just say simply, human beings are Nidon, we're judged like other things are judged? 
And this metaphor, this analogy of Omrim Lefonov Kebenei Maron were passing in front of Hashem like soldiers in the army about to go into war. What in the world does that have to do with judgment? In the classic sense, right? In the first grade perception, sitting there making the scale of mitzvos and averos. I'm sure that's a very healthy thing for a child's development. You know, will I live or die this year? What is, what is walking in front of Hashem like a soldier on the way to war have to do with judgment? And then we have another strange thing. Right? So, many, so many different facets here that need to be understood. Famously as well, the Gemara tells us that just like Yishmael was judged by Asher Husham, Hashem was looking at Yishmael, and the angels were saying, let him die! Do you understand what kind of terrible things he's going to do to the Jewish people in the future? There is going to be such evil and devastation and tragedy in the world based on this man's descendants. Let him die. And Hashem's response was, right now. Is he righteous or is he evil? Is he a tzaddik or is he a rasha? Right now, he didn't do anything wrong yet. And therefore, I have to judge him but asher husham right where he is. Based on this, the Gemara says, Amar of Yitzchak, When we speak about this mishpat, this judgment that takes place on Rosh Hashanah, what does Hashem bring into the equation? Logically, I would have assumed, Everything. Last week when I was yelling at my children and the week before when I was neglectful for my wife and I did something a little bit dishonest, everything should be part of the cheshbon. The Gemara says, no, no. Hashem's not going to waste his time looking at all the little things you've done in the past year or the past years. It's Basher Husham. It's right now. Who are you right now? Are you stepping up? How in the world does that make any sense? It's a nice idea. It might make you feel good if I had a rough year. Okay, as long as I show up to shul, I do my thing, I'm going to dip the apple in the honey, I'm going to open up my machzer and say the special greeting, which is always hard to say every year, but I'm going to try to get the words out, tikasev, etechasev. I'll do everything I have to do, and then I'm good to go. doesn't sound like a just system. So the question is, there are many questions here. First and foremost, why is it called Hayom Haras Olam, the birth of the world or the conception of the world, if really it's the anniversary of the creation of the human being? And why that word Hara? It should be, this is the creation. What does conception or pregnancy have to do with anything? Question number two is, why doesn't it just say simply in the Mishnah, just like other things are judged the other three times of the year, so too the human being is nidon. He stands in judgment. What does it mean, ovrim lefanav, we pass before Hashem? And then the analogy of kebenei maron, like the soldiers in the army of David HaMelech, on our way to war, what in the world does that have to do with standing in judgment? And then the whole system, of Hashem looking at me by Sherhu Sham, who am I right now? Not considering the past. Why is that fair? Why is that just? We know that Rosh Hashanah, there's no tshuva. 
We could think in terms of tshuva, wanting to return to Hashem, wanting to rectify different issues or struggles we have. But there's no formal tshuva on Rosh Hashanah. If there was any time of the year that I would have assumed this is appropriate to repent, it's when you're being judged. It's when your life is at stake. Do tshuva! No tshuva. And last but not least, the whole confusion, the whole cholent of ideas, Rav Chaim Friedlander was bothered by the question, why is Rosh Hashanah the first day of the new year? It would be much more reasonable if you're judging me on the past, it should be the last day of the previous year. And then we could start fresh. Why the first day of the new year? Dip the apple in the honey. What's going on over here? So, don't make fun of this. Because I've never heard this one before. But I want to focus on light. I want to focus on the power of light. We say twice a day, Ladavid Hashem Ori the Ishi Mimiira. David's composition of his song is that Hashem, you are my light and you are my help, you are my assistance. I'm trying not to wor- use the word salvation. Doesn't sound like our religion. But you are my light and you are my assistance. What what should I fear from? So the Medrash tells us. Ori Hashanah. When is Hashem my light? That's describing, that's defining the essence of Rosh Hashanah. It's the light. Ori. Ishi, my salvation, my assistance, my help. Biyom HaKippurim. That's Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur makes sense. Through the tshuva process, it's the greatest simcha in the world. We get that sense of a fresh, clean slate. That's a Yeshua. That's a big help. But what does it mean that Rosh Hashanah is my light? What's the ore of Rosh Hashanah? <clears throat> so, Baruch Hashem, tonight we have fleshiks. Not just sushi, but special for the Yontif. We have poppers and franks and blanks. So you probably don't want to hear about photosynthesis. It brings back bad memories of high school. But I want to focus on photosynthesis just for a moment. Light absorption is one of the coolest things in nature. Light is absorbed and converted into energy, and in plants this process is known as photosynthesis. The source of oxygen that everything needs to live comes from the process of photosynthesis. The basic equation is you have carbon dioxide, water, and then the sunlight that's absorbed in the plant, that produces glucose, that produces oxygen. Life is sustained by the sun. Right? The warmth and the radiance of the shemesh of the sun is the shoresh achayim. That's the root of life. Life is sustained and created through the sun. So how does it work deep down in the ocean? In the ocean underwater, there are three different zones. The first zone, which is from the surface to 200 meters. For those of you Americans here, 200 meters is more than 600 feet. In that first zone, it's called sunlight, where you have the light coming through, 
and therefore the process of photosynthesis can and does occur. And the vast majority of all of the beautiful fish and, and plant life we have in the ocean are right there within those first 200 meters. That's the sunlight zone. Then you have a middle zone, which is known as twilight. Or on yeshivis, it's benishmashos. Right? The second zone is from 200 meters to 1,000 meters, namely from more than 600 feet until about 3,200 feet. In that second twilight zone, light is diminished significantly to the point where photosynthesis no longer occurs. Right? There still could be some light depending on where you are, but the power, the, the, the koach of the shemesh is not there. And then you have the third layer. The third layer is after 1,000 meters, so from 3,200 feet and anything deeper, that zone is called midnight, where it's pitch black. So what lives in the pitch black reality? You would think not much. What's going on in the pitch black? The amazing answer is, is that obviously there are billions and billions and billions of species of majestic fish and jellyfish and all sorts of exotic creatures that when you see pictures of, you almost feel like you're looking at an alien. The strangest creatures in the world live in the midnight zone of the ocean, pitch black. No life, no light, no photosynthesis. How do they communicate with each other? I can't see you. And many of these creatures don't make any noises. So there's something called bioluminescence. Bioluminescence, you'll be tested on this. Bioluminescence is basically, it's a chemical reaction between luciferin and oxygen. It sounds like there are billions of creatures that are able to illuminate themselves based on this chemical reaction. Some have suggested, what's the most common language in the world? What's the most common form of communication? It's not speech, and it's not sound, it's light. Right? Through me somehow creating my own light and sharing that with you, that form of communication is the most common way of connecting with other things on the planet. Bioluminescence. Says the Peleoids. Peleoids writes that if you have someone living in a dungeon underground, miles and miles below the surface for years, never seeing the light of day. So then what happens is, even if once a year you'll have a special uh, exception where somebody walks down to his little cave area with a candle, likely because his eyes are closed the other 364 days, he won't even be able to open his eyes. But the fact that the candle is right there in front of his face, he's going to sense it. It's a little bit lighter than usual. He's going to feel the warmth. It's not as cold as it usually is. Says the Peleoites, this is really the state of every human being. He says, we live in an existence where we, 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 we're in choshech, we're in darkness. 
we get so distracted by the confusion and the illusion of Olam Hazah, it's as if we're living in pitch black, in the midnight zone. Once a year, we do have the opportunity where there is a light shining right in front of us. But there's a need for two factors. Number one, the light has to be there. And number two, I have to open my eyes a little bit. If I don't open my eyes at all, I'm still going to feel it. I'm still going to sense it. But according, commensurate with the amount that I can open my eyes and receive that light, so then the more of that light that's absorbed within me. If I open my eyes a little bit, I'll see a little bit of the light. And according to how much I could open my eyes, that's the amount of light I'll be able to receive. He says there is no Jew, if they're honest with themselves, if they're not distracting themselves, where they don't feel deep down whether or not I'm observing the yontif. There's a hargasha, there's a feeling of ava and yira, of love and reverence that's more real and more tangible this time of year than any other time of year. Hashem gave us Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and every moed as shining a special type of light that we need for our neshama. And he says it's true the more we do hachana, the more we prepare ourselves ahead of time, the more I'll be able to really embrace and absorb that light. However, even if I've done nothing up until this point, and I will continue to do nothing until Rosh Hashanah comes, even if that's the case, the nair, the candle is there in front of my face, and I have the opportunity to open my eyes and let that light in. Throughout the year, we largely live in the midnight zone. During these days of Rosh Hashanah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu takes us out from thousands of meters underwater in the pitch black, and he brings us through the twilight zone, up until the sunlight zone, where we feel the shemesh, we feel the ore, we feel the light. We're surrounded by a majestic array of creatures, colors and design that we don't usually see. That's Yomim Norayim. These are the days of awe. How do we absorb this light? What does it take on our end? How do we open our eyes? So I want to share with you something called Ratzon. Ratzon means a desire. Remember last year, my four-year-old at the time, they had a special project they came home with where they had to answer the question, what will I ask Hashem on this Rosh Hashanah? What am I going to daven for? And his answer was, a cookie. Right, how amazing is that? So when I was questioning him, a cookie, really? That's it? His response was, a chocolate chip cookie. Right. What do we want from Hashem? We're going through this process. We have mixed feelings going into it. We might have baggage and trauma from previous years. What do we want out of this? So I want to share with you a few ideas from Rav Chaim Freelander. He was the great mashkiach, the spiritual leader of the Panovich Yeshiva. We quote him often. 
He was a disciple of Reb Dessler. Take a look here at number 11. And this is a whole different understanding of Rosh Hashanah, and I think this will help really answer all of our questions. Reb Chaim Friedlander writes that we think, mistakenly, every year is pretty much the same as the previous year. We're going to be standing in shul, hearing the same melodies, going through the same basic ritual, feeling, been there, done that. I had this before, I'll have it again, Amir Tzashem. It's what we do, we're Jewish, we go to shul. It's choser b'kaviyas ha'machzor, we assume it's just a repetition. Yomim norayim, shlosh regalim, you have the holidays, you have the seasons. However, explains of Chaim Friedlander, Ulam Lokachem Paneha Devarim, that's not really what's going on. You have a warped impression of time and reality. Why? So he quotes from the Maral. The Maral says, How do you say the word year in Hebrew? Shana. Right? Shana Tova. A good year. Where does the word Shana come from? Says the morale, it comes from the word shinui, which means to change. There's an intimate connection between shana and shinui. Kol shana hi shinui chodash lechalutin. Every year is radically new. Asher kamohu lo ba'avar habos. This year that we're going into never happened in the history of the world and it never will occur again. Every year is unique. It's special. It's special flavor. It's special color. It's special tam. It's chadasha. Every year has its own mission in the Vodas Hashem and how we collectively serve Hashem and how I as an individual come closer to Hashem. Shana is Shinui. He quotes in the Ramban, again, we're not going to have time to explore this at length, but the Ramban says that the Sheshis Yimei Bereshis, the six days of creation, they really include all 6,000 years of history. Meaning to say that whatever took place on day one, somehow that's planting the seeds for what will unfold during the first thousand years of history. Whatever took place on day two, that's creating the storyline of what will happen from year 1000 to 2000 and so on and so forth. Just like you take a seed and you plant it in the soil. If you look at that seed very carefully, what does it look like? Nothing. It's a little brown thing about this big. And then miraculously, you put it inside of the soil, and you see it begins to take root, and it sprouts. And then, when it begins, I'll call with all of the details, it begins to sprout. And the taste of the fruit, and the color, and the size, and the nature of it, and the hatzlacha, how it will thrive, and how it will continue to grow. That was all inside of that little tiny seed. We couldn't see it beforehand, but now looking at this awesome, magnificent tree, we realize, wow, that all came from 
a little tiny thing. The seed is the potential, and the tree is what it's able to produce. Says Rav Chaim Friedlander, every year, in the beginning of the year, Rosh Hashanah is planting the seeds for what will and what can happen in this Shinui, in this new reality. He says, Rosh Hashanah, Maisa, Adam, She'ovru, obviously what we did in the past is part of the equation of how Hashem is now determining to create the next year. Ulam loha of our ikr. But the past is not the main thing. The past is not the main focus on Rosh Hashanah. Elaha asid. It's the future. Rosh Hashanah is about the future, not the past. He says, Zehu hayom haras olam. When we say today is the conception or the pregnancy of the world, it's We don't say in the davening, this is the anniversary of the creation of the world. It's not true. It's the creation of Adam, of the human being. But it is Yom Harasolam because the potential in this new world that Hashem is infusing into reality right now, in the beginning of the Shana, that potential starts on the first of the year. The example, to, to take a lofty concept and bring it down to something more tangible. Any good CEO, and you have hundreds of thousands of people working under you, doing all sorts of very sophisticated jobs, and if you're really looking out for their best, you want to make sure that I understand your challenges, I, I know where your deficiencies were. I know what you need to really be successful. Come, let's schmooze. We're starting a new year. And I know last year I gave you $8 million as a budget to play with. How did that work out? So, what's your answer? Well, 7.5 million out of the eight I used on buffalo wings. They were delicious. And the other half million dollars, I have no clue what happened. Sorry. So most likely, the CEO will say, well done, I'm going to give you now $15 million to play with, and let's see what more you can do for the company. Probably not. If, though, I'm the employee, I'm working for you, my response is, the truth is, there were many areas that I was deficient. I feel that many of my responsibilities I did not fulfill to the best of my ability. But I am super motivated to do the best I can for the corporation. I want to bring in more money this year. I want to I get the product out. I want people to like it. I want people to tell their friends about it. And I have a plan going forward. I'm super motivated. And although maybe I made some mistakes along the way, let's talk about the future. Can you help me be matzliach in my endeavors on behalf of the corporation? If I'm being honest, and I'm a genuine fellow, the CEO will say, of course, let's talk about what I could do for you to set you up for success. 
And if that means giving you assistance over here, maybe taking this job out of your realm, giving you something different, but I want your best. Explains with Chaim Friedlander, the judgment on Rosh Hashanah is not a classic judgment. That will happen when we leave the world. Then we stand in front of the infinite creator of the universe and everything is analyzed. This is who I am. These are the choices that I've made throughout my life. This is it. Rosh Hashanah, though, it's a little bit different. It's not about everything you did in the previous year and paskening, death or life. It's looking into the future. I'm planting seeds. I have Kadosh Baruch Hu, I'm planting seeds for the future of the world, Klal Yisrael, and you as an individual. I'm giving you your light. I'm shining upon you the radiant light of spiritual photosynthesis. Will you embrace that light? Will you absorb that light? I want to hear from you. If my answer is yes, bring it on. Hineni, I'm ready. I'm ready to receive it. I want everything I do to the Mitzvah the Shem Shemayim. I know I have deficiencies, but I ask for your help. Then Hashem is going to shine that light on me. That's why Rosh Hashanah is not a day devoted to tshuva. We do tshuva beforehand, we do more tshuva afterwards, doing a serious tshuva, but the day itself is a focus on the future, not so much the past. What I want, my she'ifa, what's my rotzon? I want more than the chocolate chip cookie. I want to live, I want to live for you, I want to maximize my potential. That's why I want life, not just to watch one more football game. I want life because I know I have more to give to the world. Cesar Chaim Friedlander, Avodas Hayom Hu, Lehisuromeim Likrasasid, our task for the day, our mission on Rosh Hashanah is to uplift ourselves with hope for the future, with a rotzone for the future. Lomar to say to Hashem, Hineni, I'm ready, I'm ready to go. I want to accept upon myself the reality that you're in total control. And everything I do, I want to do lemancha, I want to do for you. Hayom harasolam, the new world, the shinui that's being created, it is a conception. It's, it's potential. It's pregnancy. That's what's happening in Rosh Hashanah. There's new potential that's being given to each one of us based on what we can do, based on what we want to do. Everything else, the wheat, the fruits of the tree, the water on Sukkot, that's nidon. That's just good old-fashioned judgment. What will be? Human beings, not nidon, Ovrim lafanav kibbenei maron. We pass before Hashem, meaning to say, explain many gedolei Yisrael. We pass right in front of you, Hashem, in this intimate relationship, knowing that you're the CEO that loves me and wants my success, and I want to do a better job. Ovrim lafanav, we're like soldiers about to go to war. This is not classic judgment, will I live, will I die? That's obviously part of an overall cheshbin. But we're passing in front of you, about to embrace more of the battlefield of life. 
We're asking for siyata deshmaya. We're asking to shine that light on us during the battle of life. And that's why we're judged ba'asher husham. Not that Hashem is ignoring the past, but that's not the main focus. The main focus is, what do I want to do with my capacity, with my ability? Where am I right now? So even if we've made many mistakes, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is looking at me, Ba'asher Hu Sham, what do I want to be? The light is shining with incredible radiance and warmth. The brightness, the life-giving nutrients, it's all there during these awesome days. How do we soak it in? Through standing and saying, Hineni, we want life because we want to live Lemancha. The story that they say about Glenn Cunningham. Glenn was born in Kansas on August 4th, 1909. And in February 1916, at the age of six, he and his nine-year-old brother Floyd were given the assignment that they would walk to school. They'd walk two miles every day to school, and they would have to start up the stove to get the, uh, the schoolhouse warm before the teachers and other students would arrive. It was one cold morning, the two boys loaded up the large potbelly stove of firewood, and they took the kerosene and soaked the logs as they always did. However, this particular morning, something went terribly wrong. Instead of pouring on the kerosene, it sounds like somehow there was a mistake and they poured on gasoline. They got there, they lit it, and the whole thing exploded. Floyd, Glenn's older brother, died from severe burns, and Glenn himself was in very, very critical condition. When the doctors first saw him, they said the likelihood of, of this kid surviving is kamat zero. But Glenn had this, this courage, this desire to live that was almost, almost abnormal. And they said to his family, even if he does make it out of this, even if he does live, the odds of him ever walking again are extremely slim. We'll probably have to amputate his legs. Baruch Hashem, he made it out of the hospital. And um, it was now the early summer of 1919 when he really wanted more than anything to walk again. He was wheelchair-bound, and basically, he was sitting outside, looking at the grass, remembering the times when he could run, when he had legs that worked. And uh, he couldn't take it anymore, so he decided to throw himself on the grass. He threw himself on the grass, and he starts dragging himself towards the picket fence that was in front of the house. He finally reaches the fence, he raises himself up, and then stake by stake, he tries to, to move. Tries to take a step, can't yet do that. But that was the beginning of his journey, where he was determined that no matter what happens, I will walk again. Every day, with a sense of faith, a sense of courage, he kept on doing this, throwing himself in the grass, dragging himself to the picket fence, pulling himself up and trying to take step after step, Three years after the incident, he began walking. First, it was only through holding on to a cane. Then eventually, it was through his own two legs. 
And then he would try to walk faster, he would jog, and he would run. Years later, a couple years later, he would now run to school every day just for the sheer enjoyment of being able to run. When he was 12 years old, he was now known as one of the fastest runners in his little town in Kansas, and he was able to beat all the local high school runners. February 1934 in New York City's famed Madison Square Garden, this young man who wasn't expected to survive, and even if he did, would certainly have no legs. There was no hope to run, but he was able, Dr. Glenn Cunningham, to run the world's fastest mile at that time. The doctors said, this is almost supernatural. The only way we understand this is based on his overwhelming desire to get back on the track. When it comes to embracing the light, in the words of the Peleoites, opening up our eyes to that ore that's shining so bright, the key ingredient is the Ratzon. Hayom haras olam, where there's so much potential. And even if we've made many mistakes in the past, it's all about what I want to be doing in the future. I want to live. I want to live lemancha. I want to be Mekadeshem Shemayim. I want to inspire others. I want to be a mensch. I want to be sensitive. These are things that I'm living for. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, help me. You shine the light on me, and I know you will. Vehineni. I'm going to embrace it and absorb it. And through that, we should all be Zoha. To a year, Shnas Tova, with Bracha, Hatzlacha, and a lot of spiritual photosynthesis. Okay, Shkoyach, everybody.